All right, so we are finishing our series this morning. We're doing a a short four-week series called The Perseverance of the Savior and His Saints. And this morning is the last of those four four sermons. So next week, we're going to start a new series through the Minor Prophets. Um, Minor Prophets are those 12 shorter books at the end of the Old Testament. Um, Probably some of us don't spend a whole lot of time there. Uh, There can be confusing, you know, difficult sections to understand, but there's so much grace, so much truth in there that we need to mine, so many riches in there to mine. So what we're going to do is take one book per week. So it's going to take us 12 weeks. You know, quick math there for you. Just make sure you're awake. Um, So we're going to start with Hosea next Sunday, and I'm actually going to send out, we're going to send out a reading plan uh, over the next three months so that you can spend more time in and benefit more from this series through the Minor Prophets. So if you don't have a plan right now, you can, there's going to be one version that'll take you through all 12 books twice and through these great introductory videos, the Gospel Project. So uh, gospelprojectithink.org or something like that. And uh, you'll be able to get a, a good, helpful introduction to each book. And then uh, there's also kind of a, a shorter version. If you already have a reading plan, you could just tack this on and basically get through each of the 12 minor prophets once over the next three months. Um, so I think that'll help all of us if we're soaking in it to benefit the more uh, week by week. All right. So this morning, 1 John, and the end of this series on perseverance. So the Bible has a lot to say about the perseverance of the saints, our need for endurance all the way, warnings not to drift like we looked at last week, not to fall away from following after Jesus, to stay alert, to stay awake spiritually, right? There also is such a thing as false profession of faith, lip service. You know, we don't want to be fooled. We don't want to have fake faith that in the end is exposed. So you have language like this in the Bible, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith so that you don't fail the test. So the Bible has a lot lot to say about the perseverance of the saints, but it also has a lot to say about the perseverance of the Savior which is really good news. He is able to keep us steady and firm all the way till the end. He has keeping power. So the security of his people is a massive theme in the Bible. So we looked at John 10. Jesus is the good shepherd, and no one can snatch his sheep out of his hand. Or Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. He's going to finish what he started. So you see how those are two truths that could be pitted against each other. Well, are we secure or do we need to persevere? Yes. Okay. Both are true and need to be held together, not in tension or contradiction, but actually as complementary truths, okay? Both truths are supposed to function 
in the right way on our hearts and in our lives. So if you, if you ever use the, the security verses, the perseverance of the Savior truths to dismiss or be flippant about sin and coldness and drift, that's dangerous. That means you're in a scary place. That's not how the perseverance of the Savior is supposed to function in our lives. Real Christianity is not fire insurance religion. You know, you like get your get out of hell free card, you stick it in your pocket, and then you just forget about Jesus and go live however you want. Cheap grace is not the grace that the Bible gives us. It was costly for Jesus. It is free for us, but it changes us and makes us take our sin seriously and take trusting Jesus seriously. On the other hand, if we ever use the need or the call to persevere as like a scare tactic or to manipulate or control or coerce, you know, children or others, if preachers operate that way, we're misrepresenting God. So warnings are real in the Bible and they're God's idea. But God's heart is not that his people just walk around on eggshells and just fear the lightning bolt that's going to come if we step out of line. So the pattern in the Bible, you could put it this way. Maybe you've heard this before. If you think about the prophets, we're going to study the minor prophets soon, or the ministry of Jesus. I don't know who first said this, but afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. But both of those are for the good of whoever is listening, right? So if you're comfortable in your sin and you're just kind of floating along, you know, whistling in the dark, totally in danger, being afflicted and kind of like splash of cold water in your face is good for you, right? But if you are afflicted with your sin and you're, oh, you just hate it and you think probably God just barely puts up with you and you need to be comforted with the security and the grace that's yours in Christ, okay? Do you see how those things work together in complement, not in contradiction? So we focused the first two weeks of the series on the perseverance of the Savior and then also mentioned the perseverance of the saints. Last week and this week, we're focusing on the perseverance of the saints, but we're also not going to lose sight of the perseverance of the Savior, the keeping power of Jesus. So the question in front of us, in a sense, is like this. How? How do you persevere as a sinful saint? We're all sinners. We're all prone to wander. We sung the song, Come Thou Fount. So how do you persevere? In other words, you could look at that question in two different ways. How, like, help, I need power to do this. I need enablement. But also how, as in what does it look like? What's the path look like? And 1 John 1, 5 to 2, 6 gives us a lot of help in answering those questions. There's lots of things that can threaten our endurance, our perseverance. Um, just to name a few that are maybe particularly relevant to us in our lives and to the themes of our passage. Our sin can paralyze us, especially when it's repeated and we just feel like a constant failure. Our guilt can paralyze us. We can just start to slow up and slump over, spiritually speaking. We just want to give up and give in. So 
a hypersensitive conscience, like in a bad way where you're just constantly, you know, anxious before God, maybe I'm not good enough, worthy enough, can make it hard to run the race before us with courageous abandon. But also, so we need comfort in that sense, but also our blindness to our sin can likewise derail us. Dullness, coldness, it's deadly to perseverance, right? Because we're just going to float along with the current. Our, Our blindness also to the mercy and grace of God can derail us. So our blindness to our sin and blindness to the mercy and grace of God. Because if we doubt God's willingness to forgive and keep and help us, if we imagine that he barely puts up with us, then again, you're going to slump over and slow down. So how do you persevere as a sinning saint? Where does the grace come from, the power come from, and what does it look like? So let's look at 1 John 1, 5 to 2, 6 to answer those questions this morning. 1 John 1, 5, look at it again there. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. So written by the Apostle John, he heard Jesus say these things in person. So he heard it from Jesus himself. We've heard these things from Jesus, proclaim them to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Does that strike you as odd at all? (laughs) Like here's the message, God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. Would you expect him to say, John 3, 16, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I mean, certainly that is the message. That's the gospel. But this is foundational to that. God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. He's not capricious or fickle or erratic. He is completely true and trustworthy. He's not Jekyll and Hyde. There's no darkness in him. He's the father of heavenly lights, like James 1 says, who doesn't change like shifting shadows. There is no hidden agenda with God. There's no ulterior motives. There's no hypocrisy with God. There's no false promises with God. There's no bait and switch, no manipulation, no mood swings. God doesn't get up on the wrong side of the bed ever. That's really good news, and that's the basis for this faithful, covenantal love that he poured out on us through Jesus at the cross. So this metaphor of light in the Bible oftentimes refers to truth as opposed to falsehood and deception, which is associated with darkness. It also sometimes has moral connotations, okay? Light is purity, and so darkness is evil and impurity, right? So there is a moral as well as an intellectual component to the light metaphor. We need to know the truth, but we also need to live the truth, live it out. So look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, remember God is light, in him there's no darkness at all, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So on the one hand, hypocrisy betrays false faith. Okay, see verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with God and yet we walk habitually in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But on the other hand, so does self-righteousness betray false faith. Verses 8 and 10. So there's actually blindness in both cases. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar because God says we're all sinners. We've all broken his law. There's no one righteous, not even one. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it's actually blindness in both cases, the hypocrisy or the self-righteousness. So when there are patterns of hypocrisy in a professing Christian's life, They don't see the dissonance that undermines their claim of faith. Or when there are patterns of sin denial in a professing Christian's life, there's blindness to the reality, to the pervasiveness of sin. And what ends up happening? There's downplaying and justifying and rationalizing and blame shifting. And those dynamics cut us off from grace and forgiveness and cleansing. Because if you are a habitual hypocrite or self-righteous, you don't think you need the grace of God. You're blind to it. But real Christianity is real about sin. Real Christianity is not about perfection, except Jesus' perfection. (laughs) Okay, we're not going to be perfect. We're going to be sinners. But... Real Christianity gets real and honest about sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you grew up in the church or have any background, you know, understanding the Bible, you're probably familiar with 1 John 1, 9. Maybe you have it memorized. But sometimes we we can almost lose sight of how sweet and how rich something is precisely because we're familiar with it. So just make sure you slow down and notice what is here in this verse. It's amazing. There are two pairs of ideas that are so important to understand. So let's look at them in turn. First, faithful and just. Okay, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us, right? So God has promised new covenant promises. He's promised to forgive repentant sinners. He will keep that promise. He is faithful to all of his promises. But he's also just and righteous to do so. This is the shocker. And it's amazing and it's wonderful. Okay? It's a justice issue that he must forgive repentant sinners. Justice. 
So I, I don't think this shocks. Okay, so in Proverbs 17, 15, it says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. But wait a second. In the gospel, doesn't the Lord justify the wicked? <laughs> doesn't he make righteous those who are sinful? Like while we were still sinners, he sent Jesus to die for us. How can God be just and forgive guilty cosmic criminals? A judge can't just pardon a guilty criminal simply because he has a merciful disposition. It'd be a miscarriage of justice. And God is not unjust. This is the beauty and the wisdom of the gospel. God satisfied in Christ both his justice and his mercy. They kissed at the cross. The best place to see that unpacked is Romans 3. So the verses should be up on the screen here. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. We can't be right in God's sight just by trying to keep the law because we can't keep it perfectly. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. This word is in our passage too. We'll look at it in a minute. By his blood to be received by faith. And then this. This was to show, to demonstrate, to vindicate God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just to make this a little bit more concrete, how in the world did God forgive David of his wicked sinfulness? Just totally exploiting and taking advantage of Bathsheba, having, his, having her husband murdered. What, what paid for that? How does he, how is he just in forgiving King David? Some animals sacrificed on an altar? Blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin. It was provisional. That sacrificial system was provisional. It pointed ahead. He was in his forbearance passing over former sins because one day, the son of David, the anointed one, the true sacrifice would come to really bring atonement for all who would trust God. So David in the Old Testament and us trusting this provision of God that we might be made right with God. And so he can be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus because Jesus satisfied the justice of God paying for our sin, taking our punishment, fully absorbing that punishment in our place, and giving us God's mercy justly. So that's the first pair. He's faithful and he's just. It's amazing. Realize that, Christian. When you confess your sins, you don't have to wonder like, oh, I hope I haven't, you know, like overstayed my welcome or burned up too much grace. No, it's a justice issue because of the gospel, because of the new covenant promises. 
His mercy's new every morning. He, you can't, like, exhaust it. He's going to be faithful to his promises to forgive repentant sinners. But there's another pair, forgive and cleanse. So again, let's take King David again. He knew that after the wickedness of his sin against Bathsheba and her husband, just wicked, multi-layered sin, Nathan confronted him. He broke And then he wrote Psalm 51, 1 to 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. That's guilt. So deal with my guilt. Forgive my guilt. But also, I've been corrupted by my sin. So wash me, cleanse me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me of my unrighteousness. We need both. We need forgiveness and cleansing. Sin doesn't just make us guilty. It also makes us dirty. It corrupts us. So we are guilty and dirty. But the blood of Jesus takes care of both, pardoning us and purifying us. So he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. So what is the perseverance of the saints look like from verses 5 to 10. It looks like walk in the light. Honest with yourself. Honest with God. Honest with others. Owning and confessing your sin. And then believing and embracing the forgiveness and cleansing that's yours in Christ. He's faithful and just to cleanse and forgive you. You don't have to stay at arm's length. You don't have to do any penance when you sin to try to work your way back into God's good graces. You confess, you believe the gospel again, the good news, the grace that's yours in Christ. You embrace it and you move on. So I grew up in the church, but I remember the first time this, there there was this like really significant moment and it was almost in the midst of like an offhanded comment by a professor in college. So I'm in this, um, actually it was a New Testament survey class And this guy, Dr. Philip Comfort, was the teacher. He was this, like, crazy, you know, he came in, his hair was, like, all wet and everywhere, you know. He used to just play soccer, you know, early morning soccer, and then he'd grab a shower and come in and teach our 8 o'clock class. And he was, like, this expert in Greek manuscripts, and sometimes they would say, he'd be, like, opening the mail at the beginning of class and oh, here's, you know, the University of so-and-so, like, sending him this new manuscript that was uncovered because they want him to help date it, you know, and he's just kind of talking us through this. <laughs> anyway, it was kind of fun. So, um, so he'd do these little things, and I, I think it may have actually been on 1 John 1, 9. And he just said, you know, when I sin, I confess and repent and then just move on. And I, I was like, oh, you can just do that. You can just... You can just repent and move on. You don't have to beat yourself up. God doesn't need you to do that. You don't have to do penance. Like, I I knew the truth, but for some reason it wasn't, like, clicking. That's not how I was relating to God. I think maybe, you know, maybe I was out of fear of being too flippant or something like that. But what he was saying is this confidence that comes through Christ that Jesus already dealt with this. I just need to be honest about it. Believe the provision that's mine in Christ and move on. It was beautiful. 
so helpful to me. So I don't know. Maybe that's helpful to you too. So when we get honest and real with God about our sin, we don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to posture. We don't have to expend effort on image management. You can just relax and become the person God wants you to be. You're free. You don't have to prove anything anymore. Again, maybe I'm slow, but I'm thinking I've talked to enough people. I think I'm not alone in this. We want to have it all together, don't we? I do. I want everybody to think I have it all together. So they'll look up to me and respect me, you know. I care too much what people think of me. And so that's why we, we have, you know, facades and fronts and image management, all this. Because if they really knew who we were, then we'd be rejected. Is that maybe what's going on? But the gospel frees us to be real, to be honest with ourselves, with God, and with others, to learn to be comfortable in our skin, like soul-level skin is what I'm talking about. But speaking of comfortable in your skin, how many of us deal with self-consciousness all the time? Maybe every time you look in the mirror. Body image issues. You hate what you see. Even attitude like the person you've become. I hate what I see. Not comfortable in your own skin. That is actually a check engine light for something deeper. Why do we do that? Why is that so important to us? Why do we feel this way? Because we want to be perfect. We want to be acceptable. We want to be beautiful and not ugly. We want to be naked and unashamed. So we try all manner of fig leaves to cover what we're ashamed of. But what if we could be perfect? What if we could be perfectly acceptable, beautiful in God's eyes and no longer ashamed, confident and loved? Well, that's not just a what if. That's, that's what we have in Christ because it's his righteousness that covers us. We are in Christ If you are trusting Jesus as your Savior, he took all of your sin on the cross and he gave you his righteousness like a white robe. So again, if we really believe that, we really get that, if that gets worked down into the core of who we are, we are going to start knowing who we are. We're going to relax and there's going to be this confident humility. (laughs) We don't have anything to prove anymore. And that's what 1 John is pushing us to, getting real with God, but also knowing what's ours in God, all the grace that's ours in Christ. So have you come to the light? Are you walking in the light, looking in with honest self-examination, looking up with honest confession and repentance? Or are you just running and hiding in the darkness, afraid to look in, you know, keep the volume up so that we don't have to be quiet with ourselves and face who we are? 
running and hiding in the darkness, even afraid to look up because we're afraid of what we might see on God's face. No, 1 John 1, 9, this is the path to life and freedom, whether for the first time to become a Christian or the gazillionth time as we continue to walk as a Christian. Getting real with God. I am a sinner in need of a Savior and grace. So for the first time, save me. And that could happen today. If you came into this service or tuned in, not a Christian, you can leave it as a Christian, trusting Jesus as your Savior. Or this is something we need to embrace and believe every single day. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So one more thought before we move on to point two here. And the first two points are the significant ones. Third and fourth point will be quick. So we've got to make sure we think rightly about what it means to walk in the light. Okay? If you think of this too, like, atomistically, like an atomistic metaphor for obedience, you're going to miss the point. In other words, if you think, when I'm obeying Jesus, I'm walking in the light. When I'm sinning, I'm walking in the darkness. You're actually going to have trouble understanding this verse. Because it's going to be, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. But listen, 1-9 makes it clear that those who walk in the light sin. <laughs> because you have to sin if you're going to confess your sins, right? The whole point is you're real with your sin. You're getting honest about that sin. You're not hiding it. You're not denying it like the verses around. And there's not this kind of like pattern of hypocrisy. So a huge part of what it means to walk in the light is to be honest about your sin, to get real with God about it. So it's more like two umbrella categories. So people who are walking in the darkness are, there's this pattern of hypocrisy or this pattern of denying sinfulness and self-righteousness in place of it. Walking in the light includes, of course you're going to sin, but you're going to be honest with God about it. And deal with it. Now, what gives us the courage to deal honestly with our sin? How do we know it's safe to get real with God and with others? It actually comes from knowing the heart of God. And we have this beautiful window into the heart of God in the next verses, 1 John 2, 1 to 2. So point number two, we have an advocate. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, so taking the previous verses seriously doesn't mean that it doesn't matter if you sin. Okay, we want to take it seriously. John is writing, one of his purposes for writing is that we would not sin, that we would not live in habitual sin. Nevertheless, no matter how vigilant and intense we fight, to follow Jesus, to trust him, to fight our, our selfishness and our pride and our lusts and our coveting and our bitterness, whatever, we're still going to sin. So John then encourages us in the second half of verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So last week, if you're here, we looked at just briefly at Hebrews 7.25 which talks about how Jesus intercedes for us, okay? Like he's the great high priest and he lives always to make intercession for us. So intercession implies 
the work of mediation between two parties, standing in between two parties to intercede. And that's a sweet truth, but that's not all that Jesus does. He's also our advocate. And there's some overlap with these two, I guess you could say, roles that Christ fills, intercessor and advocate, but they are actually distinct. So intercession and advocacy both focus on mediation between two parties, but an intercessor stands between, an advocate comes alongside and stands with the accused, the defendant, or the vulnerable party. So Jesus doesn't just stand in between us. He also comes alongside us to defend us. So how in the world can we guilty sinners stand before a perfectly holy and omniscient God who is the judge of all the earth? Nobody's getting away with anything in in God's universe. He knows every word, every thought, every deed, every twisted desire. Nothing is hidden from him. So how in the world can we stand on our own, on the basis of our own merit, at the end of our life before this judge? Totally hopeless. (laughs) There's no chance. In fact, maybe you want to ask somebody this week. I've asked a number of people this at different times over the years. If you were to die and stand before God the judge, would you ask for justice or mercy? Like, do you just want what's due you, like what you deserve, or would you like God to have mercy on you? I actually had one guy on a plane say, justice, you liar. Anyway, um, we, all, we have no appeal if we're honest with ourselves, like except to mercy. But on what basis do we have claim to that mercy? The mercy is only found in and through Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So, Probably the best way to picture this advocacy on our behalf is like this. Jesus Christ is like our defense attorney. So he's the one who comes alongside us as we approach the bench of the judge of the universe. Satan, on the other hand, is like a prosecuting attorney. In fact, the the name Satan means the accuser. The devil's like a prosecuting attorney bent on your condemnation. He loves to wag his finger in your face and bring up your sin. Jesus is your defense, not your prosecuting attorney. So Satan's wagging his finger. Your advocate comes beside you and pleads your case on account of his blood. And your advocate is not just any advocate. It is Jesus Christ, the righteous. So when he defends and intercedes for you on the basis of his righteousness, not yours, then if God is for you, who can be against you? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one to condemn? Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So once again, there's these two truths laid side by side. They're not contradictory. They're not even intention. They're totally complimentary. Don't sin. <laughs> like I'm writing, through these, writing these things to you that you may not sin. Take sin seriously. As John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But if you do sin, and of course we're all going to wander and we're going to sin, you have an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous is your defense attorney. So 
we sing the song Before the Throne of God Above. Um, just listen to the lyrics again, some of the lyrics from that song. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Which leads right into verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's a big word that we probably never use in normal conversation, propitiation. What in the world does that refer to? So in the ancient Near East, propitiation was something that, you know, in like a pagan circle, um, pagan worship, you had to make sure you kept on the good side of the gods, You wanted to appease their wrath because the gods were kind of cranky and sometimes they, you know, were in a bad mood. And so you would offer a sacrifice, you know, maybe put out some food or burn some incense because if you wanted to get pregnant or if you wanted your crops to grow, you got to make sure that the God of fertility is happy with you. So you make these offerings in order to appease the wrath of the deity so that they'll bless you. So is that how it works with God? Like, make sure you, you know, come to church and make sure you put a little money in the plate and make sure you do this just to keep on God's good side because otherwise he's got this, like, hair-trigger anger and he'll just zap you. No. It's blasphemous if we use it in that way. We could never appease the wrath of God. His righteous, not not hair-trigger anger, but his principled opposition to evil, his just wrath against sin and evil. Well, the only way that that could actually be satisfied is if Jesus dies in our place. So Jesus is the propitiation, the the sacrifice that made full atonement for our sin and satisfied the wrath of God. So just another word picture from the Bible. Sometimes there's this cup of God's wrath that's going to be poured out on those who rebel against him, like in Revelation and sometimes in the Psalms. So basically at the cross, Jesus took that cup of God's wrath that we deserve to drink and he drank it down to the dregs and he said, it is finished. So your sin is completely paid for if you're in Christ. Completely. There's no wrath left. There's nothing left but love for God's people, those who are in Christ. I love the way John Stott in his classic book, The Cross of Christ, puts all of this. He says, God does not love us because Christ died for us. You know, Jesus didn't have to, like, twist his father's arm. Christ died for us because God loved us. If it is God's wrath which needed to be propitiated, 
It is God's love which did the propitiating. It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating. And God himself who in the person of his son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self, in his own son, when he took our place and died for us. There is no crudity here to evoke our ridicule, only the profundity of holy love to evoke our worship. So this is how God can be righteous to forgive sinners like you and me. He can't sweep our sin under the rug of the universe and just wink and let us in. His righteousness will be violated. But now in Christ, through the work on the cross, he can be both just and the justifier of those who trust in Jesus. All right, so here comes a long quote. I've plugged this book throughout this series Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. And so hang in there. I think you'll see this one's worth it. Okay, so Ortland has some comments, and he also quotes John Bunyan a little bit here. So follow along. It's all going to be up here. But this one is worth really thinking carefully through. Satan had the first word, but Christ the last, wrote Bunyan. Satan must be speechless after a plea of our advocate. Jesus is our comforting defender, the one nearer than we know. And his heart is such that he stands and speaks in our defense when we sin, not after we get over it. In other words, you don't have to get your act together before you can come to Jesus. In that sense, his advocacy is itself our conquering of it. We are indeed called to forsake our sins, and no healthy Christian would suggest otherwise. When we choose to sin, we forsake our true identity as a child of God. We invite misery into our lives, and we displease our Heavenly Father. We are called to mature into deeper levels of personal holiness as we walk with the Lord, truer consecration, new vistas of obedience. But when we don't, when we choose to sin, though we forsake our true identity, our Savior does not forsake us. These are the very moments when his heart erupts on our behalf in renewed advocacy in heaven with a resounding defense that silences all accusation and celebrates the Father's embrace of us in spite of all our messiness. What kind of Christian does this doctrine create? Fallen humans are natural self-advocates, self-defending, we do not need to teach young children to make excuses when they, when they are caught misbehaving. There is a natural built-in mechanism that immediately kicks into gear to explain why it wasn't really their fault. Our fallen hearts intuitively manufacture reasons that our case is not really that bad. The fall is manifested not only in our sinning, but in our response to our sinning. We minimize, we excuse, we explain away. In short, we speak, even if only in our hearts, in our defense. We advocate for ourselves. What if our advocate knew exhaustively just how fallen we are, and yet at the same time was able to make a better defense for us than ever we could? No blame shifting or excuses. The way our self-advocacies tend to operate, but perfectly just pointing to his all-sufficient sacrifice and sufferings on the cross in our place, we would be free. 
free of the need to defend ourselves, to bolster our sense of worth through self-contribution, to quietly parade before others our virtues and painful subconscious awareness of our inferiorities and weaknesses, we can leave our case to be made by Christ, the only righteous one. And then he says, Bunyan puts it best, Christ gave for us the price of blood, but that is not all. Christ as a captain has conquered death and the grave for us, but that is not all. Christ as a priest intercedes for us in heaven, but that is not all. Sin is still in us and with us and mixes itself with whatever we do, whether we, what we do be religious or civil. Our houses, our shops, our trades, and our beds are all polluted with sin. Nor does the devil, our night and day adversary, forbear to tell our bad deeds to our Father, urging that we might forever be disinherited for this. But what should we now do if we had not an advocate? Yes, if we had not one who would plead. Yes, if we had not one that would, could prevail and that would faithfully execute that office for us. Why, we would die. We must die. But since we are rescued by him, let us as to ourselves lay our hand upon our mouth and be silent. Do not minimize your sin or excuse it away. Raise no defense. Simply take it to the one who is already at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you on the basis of his own wounds. Let your own unrighteousness in all your darkness and despair drive you to Jesus Christ, the righteous. Isn't that good news? We, do, we can't justify ourselves. We shouldn't even try. We should plead guilty, confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is your defense attorney, not your prosecuting attorney. Bunyan said this. He said, do you see more worth and merit in one drop of Christ's blood to save you than in all the sins of the world to condemn you? That's what we have in Christ. So now, points three and four quickly. Jesus has come alongside of us as our advocate. And now in the strength of his grace, knowing who we are in Christ, we should come after him as our master and Lord. Point three, walk in his steps, keeping his commandments. Look at verse three. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So again, back to our original question. How do we persevere? Walking in the light, honest with God, making war with sin, not taking sin lightly. You know, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But John is also graciously realistic that we will still sin. And when we do, we have an advocate. So we let Jesus do the talking. And then we focus on doing the walking, following him in verses 3 to 6. So you can read the rest of 1 John this afternoon to see how walking in the same way in which Jesus walked gets fleshed out, like in terms of loving God and loving others and not loving the world and not closing your heart to people in need and so forth. So this section is helping us fight discouragement from our sin as well as indifference toward our sin. 
It gives us vigilance and encouragement so that we can keep walking. We can carry on. We can keep from giving up. We can persevere, following in the footsteps of Jesus, but knowing that he is with us all the way to enable us. So by the grace of our persevering Savior, we can press on and persevere. Last point, persevering Savior, persevering saints. Life is hard. It's especially hard right now in lots of different ways. A lot of folks are struggling. We can feel like giving up, giving in. But let's fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the pioneer of our faith. He blazed the trail. He shows us how and where to walk. And let's be encouraged that he's also the finisher of our faith. He will keep us firm to the end. Spurgeon said this, it's not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It's his hold of you. He will hold us fast. He's not giving up on us. So dear brother, dear sister, don't give up. And let's not give up on one another because we need to help each other on this race of faith together. So we're going to close with the song that's kind of served as a theme song for our series, He Will Hold Me Fast. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are our advocate. That you have totally dealt with our sin and that you are our advocate before the Father. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and nothing can separate us from your love. So please help us to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us and keeps us from running the race that's set before us with endurance and help us to fix our eyes on you and follow you in your footsteps faithfully and with endurance. Give us grace. In your name we pray. Amen.